Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. In order to survive in an increasingly competitive marketplace, financial institutions must be able to correctly identify consumers to streamline their credit analysis process. This includes those with limited profiles which have long been a shortcoming of the banking industry. With new streams of data being generated, it's important that organizations use this data to combat fraud and improve the customer experience for all consumers, thereby expanding the availability of banking services for a broader population. We are fortunate to have Zach Cohen, COO of Trulio, a global identity verification company, on the show. Zach will discuss how alternative data can be used to provide stronger digital identities and provide credit and other services to previously underserved markets. So welcome to the show, Zach. It's really good to have you on the show. Before we dig into today's topic, could you please tell us a bit about your professional background as well as Trulio? Absolutely, Jim, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm actually an economist by trade, and my first uh, gig out of university was actually with the government. But I, I quickly moved on to stretch my entrepreneurial legs. I, I started a few companies down in Latin America and then uh, just got entranced by the tech world overall and jumped into that relatively quickly as well. And for the last 10 years of my career or so, I've been focused in what we call reg tech which is really regulatory technologies that help enable and act as a catalyst to a lot of the fintech creations that we see today. And right now I'm the COO, the Chief Operating Officer at Trulio. And uh, Trulio's mission in the world is frankly just to build trust online. So much of what we do today is uh, tied to the digital economy and we help enable that for everyone everywhere. So it's interesting, one of the dynamics of this show usually is we avoid what I'll call back office functionality, because most of our listeners and most of the subscribers to the financial brand are front office people. They're the people that engage with the consumer. They may be product managers. They may be marketing people. They're people in charge of customer experience. And what's interesting is this, while it seems to be, as you said, reg tech and back office functionality, when you look at data and the application data, really, it has a tremendous impact on the overall customer experience, as well as the ability to serve a greater breadth of consumers well beyond what traditional financial institutions have served in the past. So can you explain about how your company differs from other identity and alternative data providers that are in the marketplace? Because there certainly are quite a few. And you make such an interesting and important distinction, and we've been talking about this for a long time, and that's really the effort to shift left. And that's a security term, but we actually think of it in the compliance world a lot as well. And what that means is we believe that identity and onboarding is actually the most critical element of consumer-facing products having success in today's world. It's a global world. It's a digital-first world. And ensuring that you are shifting left in terms of your planning and strategy which means including those back office, historically back office functionalities in that front facing strategy will actually make you that much more effective and differentiate you from your competitors when you think about just what you mentioned, that user experience, that user onboarding. And so truly use approach and, and really like my philosophy around this and how we're a little bit different is we actually take a much more holistic view of the ecosystem. And what does that mean? That means that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you could get away with a point solution because you were driving a very specific product to a very specific clientele in a very specific market. Let's just say you were in the U.S. only. 
with the explosion that's happened in, in digital interactions and how much of our lives today center around online activity, that's almost an impossibility to be constricted to a very single type of population. And most companies nowadays are just global by nature, by definition. That's where the success is. There's a lot of cross-border activity. And of course, again, the internet is inherently global. So we take a holistic view and we've actually built an ecosystem where you can mix, match, layer, orchestrate all the different challenges, and there are many of them, when it comes to identity and trust online, regardless of where you are. So as an organization, I can manage my user onboarding in Estonia, the US, Latin America, et cetera, all through the same channel and the same platform. And that's an incredibly powerful statement as we change and evolve over time in the same dynamic. Well, it's interesting. Again, the, the whole issue of digital identification and ID and know your customer all overall seems to be really traditionally focused on risk and, and fraud. But the reality is, as I see it, is this technology is necessary to function in any type of digital world as much from an, a customer experience perspective, the ability to do things quickly, the ability to actually identify who somebody is who's engaged with you in such a way that they don't have to re-input all the information, but pretty much validate what's already been there. So what are some of the most important trends you've seen as it relates to the shifting of how organizations are looking at digital identities, expanding of alternative data, things of this nature. Really interesting conversation point because there's that balance, right, between friction and user experience. So we want a very quick onboarding, but you don't want to allow fraud or bad actors into your ecosystem. So how do you determine that balance act? What kind of different opportunities do you have to make it simpler for the user, but keep the bad people out? And, and that's, that's really the, the trend that we're seeing today. And the, and the best way to approach that, frankly, is by evaluating the ecosystem as a whole. And so what's interesting from our perspective, and geez, I mean, just the amount of information that I've learned over the last five, six years of doing this, the you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of transactions that we see every day, is that it actually is possible to have a dynamic, real-time orchestration of that information. So you can actually treat individuals based on certain aspects of their demographics or the information that they have or the country or the jurisdiction that they're in and actually create an ideal experience in real time instead of having to treat everybody with the same exact process. For example, if you're dealing with an individual in a highly mature market like the U.S., maybe one of those more traditional data aspects or onboarding portfolios is actually quite effective. However, what if you're in that same jurisdiction in the U.S., and now you're dealing with someone who just moved to the country maybe six months ago or, you know, came from where I am in Canada and they don't necessarily have the same access to traditional screening methods. So do you just ignore that customer? Do you send them to a really lengthy manual, really tough, friction, high friction process? No. You want to actually access different paths and venues of data and information and actually create a unique tailored user experience and workflow to that individual based on those realities. And the great thing about the technology today is it's smart enough to actually do that at a really high sophistication level so that everybody is getting equal access, um, but also treated in a unique way that 
responds to what they need to demonstrate to prove their identity and also prevent against fraud. So one of the challenges, you know, one of the concerns I have as an industry veteran, I've been in this industry my whole career, is that traditional financial institutions tend to look at things traditionally. It's really hard for them to expand their, their thought process especially when it re is regard to risk. Risk is sometimes viewed as an all or nothing game, whereby if there's any risk, I'd like to avoid it. When really, you know, sometimes the avoidance of somebody who does maybe have a deep credit file, does not have all the information you're normally looking at. You really have to look in different areas to find this, not just from the identity standpoint, but as you mentioned, the ability to serve. I mean, I, I know a number of people that have come into this country in the last 10 years and getting a mortgage is really a difficult process because they don't have any identity that we're used to. But more importantly, there's a very large segment of the population in the U.S. that are underbanked or unbanked mainly because they don't have thick credit bureau files. So, right. you know, when you look at this and you look at the key challenges of the development of digital identity, what are those challenges? How do we get to a point where we can sell, for lack of a better term, traditional financial institutions on using alternative data and other ways to identify and to serve consumers? I have a lot of empathy for those legacy financial institutions in many ways because They've created and they have actually been burdened by a more restrictive risk profile in many of these scenarios, right? They're under a lot more regulatory scrutiny. They've had established brands for a long time. And so that risk appetite has been pulled from a long history of having to deal in that environment. Whereas some of these more, you know, neobanks or, or new fintechs uh, have been able to, to be a little bit more innovative in their approach. And the other challenge why I have a lot of empathy is that their technology stack is much more rigid, right? Because it was all created in a time when there wasn't this great flexibility or API ecosystem that we have today and that you can take advantage of. That being said, I think it's been quite obvious, the shift and what is possible. And so while I have empathy, I think there's also a lot of opportunity and motivation because you can clearly see in the market those organizations that have taken advantage of new technology and have done that in a really sophisticated, really good job. And at the end of the day, right, the challenge is going to be losing market share. So when you have fintechs that are creating a new environment where you can leverage alternative data streams, where you can have different risk decisions and really monitor that over time with other tools that allow you to really make good decisioning. And not only on account initiation, but over time, right? That just opens the door for more creativity and innovation for the legacy financial institutions. But they have to see that work. And I think we now have plenty enough data, regulatory reviews, customer success. Some of those startups are now very large organizations, right, yeah. that have proven yeah. that. And so I think the challenge often is just a mindset. It's institutionalism that's within that those legacy organizations where they're just so used to doing things a certain way. It takes a really critical event to change that. And I think the market share leaders, some big acquisitions, some consolidation of those technologies is starting to drive that. But frankly, all the tools are available. And so the large financial institutions and legacy organizations that we work with, we always try and pick out a really easy, like simple use case 
that can be almost divided from their main priority business. So you can experiment, understand what the data is telling us, take a different approach, see success there, and then expand. So do you have any partners in the traditional financial institution space that have really embraced to some degree the use of alternative data to expand the marketplace they're serving? Absolutely. And it's been really cool to see. So we have some legacy financial institutions that we're only working, let's say, in Canada and the U.S., but then they want to launch, let's say, to Latin America. Okay, well, you have to understand that there isn't the same credit bureaus and government you know, databases in Latin America. You have to start understanding that there's good, really high quality phone data. There's good quality utility information, residential information. So, and, and they've actually measured that in a comparative manner to what they historically saw versus net new. Um, and also the way to enable that is actually to understand where those data sources are coming from. And the regulatory environment in the EU has actually brought a lot of light there because they've increased the restrictions and the requirements to show that chain of custody and to ensure that information is protected and there's a high level of information security maturity in those organizations that are ultimately processing that data and giving that response back. So when you actually build a model, a highly sophisticated onboarding model of those alternative data assets, and you deliver that in the same structured vehicle, it actually lowers the risk profile significantly and allows them to leverage more information. The other cool thing that's happening is just different methodologies. So, you know, five years ago, it wasn't very common for you to take a picture of your driver's license and then a picture of your own face and onboard in that manner. And when there isn't necessarily even traditional data or high quality alternative data, you can actually think of what other methodologies can we use to onboard that same user and create a risk profile based on that. And so new technology innovation has also allowed similarly financial institutions to dip their toe in a little bit more. Whereas you see some, again, some of the neobanks and more fintechs, they just started that way first off and foremost, and have actually started to build more traditional elements in afterwards. So it's a really interesting progression that we've seen. So when we look at biometrics, uh, be it fingerprints or facial IDs, things of that nature, how is that playing into the role of overall digital identification from your perspective? I mean, it's playing a big role. So like, you know, biometrics is an increasingly valuable method to prevent against fraud. You know, we have two different areas in the world. I mean, there's really three big use cases. We have more the compliance use case, which is your KYC, your AML check, certain things that either governments prescribe you have to do, or you have your risk-based approach that you want to ensure. There's also fraud prevention where you can prevent people. Like, are you actually that person that you're saying you are? And then there's more of a trust and safety use case, which is really around, you know, a marketplace, for example. Is the ecosystem, can I trust the people that are in this ecosystem with me? A variety of those different ones rely more heavily or not on biometrics, but we've seen a steady rise and increase in that utility. A big challenge there is the sophistication of the technology that is actually, you know, leveraging the biometric and trying to create a decisioning engine from it. There's already a lot of technology out there that can leverage and pull a biometric, perhaps use it in a comparative manner, store it in a certain way. But actually predicting the confidence, the assurance level of that biometric is still a developing space, but it's getting there and you can really see the end goal with what it's trying to create and how powerful it can be. And so we're investing heavily in those types of tools 
just because their utility continues to grow significantly. So the other side of fraud and risk is privacy from the consumer perspective. And as more data gets centralized into more different places where now somebody owns my credit bureau, they have my facial ID, they have maybe my fingerprint, but they also have other data that's being added in. But this is being done by private organizations and by financial institutions, by, by Apple, whoever it may be. How are organizations and how's the government do you see How are they doing from the standpoint of really allowing and reducing the privacy fears over not only biometric, but every form of data on a digital ID basis? It's not long when we see, you know, big privacy breaches becoming a regular theme. It's almost you see them in the news now and you almost expect it, which is unfortunate because it's a really dangerous scenario. Our organization has always been a privacy first one, which means that we do not retain any personal information. We process it as part of the platform, which is obviously critical to actual onboarding. But retaining the data is a real important question that all organizations need to ask themselves of how long you have to retain that information, what's its value to the organization, and how do you protect it? So when we see these very large organizations that you think would be highly sophisticated being breached, it's a nerve-wracking scenario for a consumer. Because You want to understand that the person that you're sharing your information with, and that's not only your PII, it's your habits, it's your biometrics, it's everything, um, then it's going to be safeguarded appropriately. What's really cool in the market that I see is actually now we're innovating within the privacy spectrum. So there are new tools and technologies out there when I do receive personal information. How can I actually eliminate the PII from a readable format, but still leverage the results or the indicators or the tokens of that data. So you can still have an individual not have to repeat themselves. You can limit the sharing, but still extract the value and user experience for the end user. And that's where I really think it needs to continue to go so that we can eliminate some of these so-called honeypots where you know, the sophistication level of people that are trying to access that information and the technology to do so is actually innovating just as fast as those that are trying to protect against it. And what we've seen since COVID started is this huge volume of new participants in the online economy, right? Everything from booking a doctor's appointment to shopping. And so more data is becoming on the online environment, which gives more incentive for people to access it. So privacy first and the protection of personal information has to be your first priority as an organization, because otherwise the reputational risk is too high. And again, the great news is you don't have to store that information in the same way that you used to, to still be effective to your end users. So before our break, I want to ask you a question. It's a little bit off the path we were on before, but what is your perspective on immunity or vaccination passports, which is, you know, another level of ID that we may need to travel? And what's your perspective on the pros and cons of that? As an organization, a large part of our mission is providing equal access to people, regardless of who they are and where they are, to critical digital services like financial services and the like. And so while I understand the opportunity for a immunity passport, I think our first priority as technologists should be how do we actually ensure that everybody is safe and everybody has access first? Once that has been solved, there is an opportunity to combine identity technologies with other aspects of who we are. 
I think out of all the what we call, at least in GDPR, the special categories of data, I think your health information is one of the most sensitive. Oh, yeah. So personally, although, you know, we've had in form of immunity passports in, in many ways throughout history, you know, you have your card that says, hey, I've been immunized for smallpox or for mm-hmm. this or that. So it's not a new necessarily idea. Um, because of the risk in a digital environment, I just think we need to all take the time and have patience to ensure that the technology is as foolproof as possible before we start jumping into these areas of health information, as well as not necessarily already satisfying the equal access. So the technology nuts and bolts can be created. I think we don't often think about should it be done yet as people in the space enough. So that's that's my view on it personally. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. I'm joined today by Zach Cohen, CEO of Trulio, a global identity verification company out of Vancouver, Canada. We were discussing the importance of digital identities as it relates to fraud and risk. We're now going to do a major shift and discuss the application of alternative data to expand the financial ecosystem. So, Zach, one of the components of your firm's offerings is the ability to access and deploy alternative data for credit availability and providing expanded access to financial services to those who've been left out of the system. This goes beyond just borders and and countries, but really it gets into being able to go deeper and be able to provide things such as maybe utility bill information and other items that have not traditionally been part of the public credit bureau to make it so organizations can feel comfortable offering service. This obviously has been something that the, the fintechs have used for quite some time, but how do you see alternative data improving access to financial services? It's super interesting for folks that have not spent a ton of time internationally when they realize that not everybody has a passport or at least access to a passport or not everybody has a birth certificate or not everybody can access a 
a financial record. And, you know, once you realize that, it becomes a really interesting challenge to solve. I think the biggest example that I can give that's really interesting, right, is, you know, you go into somewhere like uh, Africa. And uh, like the institutions that provide documentation about who you are are not consistent. It's sometimes difficult to access. And frankly, it inhibits a lot of individuals' participation. But what is one attribute that almost everybody has nowadays? You know, your mobile phone. So true you, when we were looking at this market, we started to think, how can we connect those two dots? And so we actually went to mobile carriers directly in all of those countries. And we start explaining to them how that can increase participation, what the benefit is for the consumer, what the benefit is for the organization. And we actually helped build, in some instances, that accessibility point to digitize those records and leverage them for a compliant, regulated use case of onboarding. All of a sudden now we've unlocked millions and millions of more people to be able to leverage fintechs or other financial services that they couldn't before. So that also now encourages organizations that have been operating in other countries to go launch there and provide their services there because they know they can satisfy the regulatory obligation. That has been one, uh, like an example of a big shift of alternative data that wasn't necessarily available or used or responded to before that now is fundamental in providing access to other organizations. And, you know, you mentioned a couple other ones that are becoming really big utility bills, you know, different kinds of resident files or car ownership or other of these different types of items that really can show visibility into the user's trustworthiness or into the user's financial history that wasn't accessible before. You know, micro loans, all of these different types of things. And all it needs to do is to standardize that digitize it and make it secure so that you can leverage it for that onboarding. And it's just amazing the kind of customer stories that we share all the time that really drives our purpose-driven company to continue to explore new alternative data assets that just didn't exist and weren't available before. So it's interesting. I was in Shenzhen, China, right before the pandemic. I was I was fortunate enough to be able to visit firms like Alibaba, Tencent, and Pingyan. And one of the most startling differences I saw in the use of data by these firms was their application of these expanded data sets for the ability to provide financial services to the masses. And when I mean masses, it's going down to, to people that we would not even consider for credit, but they had enough data in a bulk sense to feel comfortable making loans, or as you said, micro loans and, and be able to provide financial services for these consumers that in our environment in, in North America, we would never consider to embrace that way. And it was interesting because one of the organizations even used cell phone data and it, not cell phone data as in what's on my cell phone, but the way I use my cell phone to determine if something could go wrong with this relationship. So they were looking not and saying, oh, how do we reject them, but how do we approve them for these services? So why has use of alternative data been so difficult for traditional finance institutions? And what are the biggest challenges towards the broader use of alternative data? The Shenzhen example is really interesting. And, and the, the richness and availability of data there uh, might be unlike anywhere else in the oh, world. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and that, that's also where the, the struggle can be. And so on the one side, you have 
many protections and growing regulations around how you can use data, what data is available, the consent to be able to access and log and leverage that information. And the users like you and I, comfort level of providing that access. So I think that for traditional financial institutions, they are a little bit more risk averse because of the things we talked about earlier in this conversation. But it's also, you know, the technology bridge to be able to leverage that. And so being able, like when you think about it as a, either a machine learning exercise, right, or there's some type of AI that can do a big data analysis about whether it is all this, how fast you type on the keyboard or what kind of activities you've done, is that can that lead us to a decision? Um, leveraging that technology is still burgeoning. And I think that organizations now are becoming more comfortable with it. But it all starts actually, in my opinion, with the consumer. And so the regulations are in place and they're growing. And I think that's actually made a lot of financial institutions more nervous than they necessarily have to be about how can we collect that data and is it okay? So there needs to be a standardized process where consumers can give their consent and it be transparent in that way so that we have permission to then leverage that information and make those decisions. Again, in some countries, that permission is much easier to get. But if you go into the Europe where France and Germany, you know, countries like that, it's highly restrictive. And so, you know, it really is a, a risk-based approach, but there is also growing consumer attitudes that have to be taken into account and is that a bad user experience, even though technically it might be better? What's the trade-offs there? And, and that's sort of the range of experience that I've seen personally on a global level. Well, really, it gets down to a value transfer, doesn't it? You know, I'll, I'm going to allow you to use more data and use it in more different ways if I'm getting value from that equation. So if I'm a person that has a very thin file and I realize that by providing you access to things that I would have considered to be very private to me allows me access to credit or financial services that I want. But I'm more likely to do that. I, I think we see that every day, and I bring this up many times in my podcast, with Amazon. I mean, we, we not only give them all this data and they know everything about us, but they use it effectively. And we actually pay them for the right to shop, which, which doesn't have to do with free shipping. It really has to do with the ability to take my information and use it for my benefit. You know, Netflix uses information about my viewing habits to recommend future shows. And you don't even think about the privacy aspect of that because you're getting something of value in return. So it really gets down to, you know, am I going to get something from this? So from this, are you a believer then that the consumer themselves should be the owner of their privacy and the owner of their data? You make a great point, Jim, and it, and it is absolutely about value driving, right? So value creation. And I, I think that this is in many ways what Europe has actually gotten right. It's just taken a little bit of time to interpret and understand and put in place. But as a consumer, I should absolutely be able to say, hey, here's my information. Use it to help me. Use it to provide value. Equally, you should be able to say, stop using it. Return it to me. Delete it. And there should be a, a standard in terms of how that information is going to be protected while it is being used for those purposes. That's the structure. It's that simple, hard to roll out, but I think an actual easy concept to understand. 
So when I think about as a user, for those that are okay with sharing as much as they can, then that's okay. But there should always be that optionality. And so you ask, you know, should the user be in control of their own data? I think that it's only fair that an individual who chooses to leverage a service and provide information has the right to say, this is how you use it. And this is what the functionality and value I get from using it. And this is when you need to stop using it. You know, very similar than you and you walk into a store yourself and you select that purchase and they know that this many people bought it last time. So they're going to stock their shelves the same way. The issue is how that data is being shared and in a digital environment, the scale of all of this information and the intelligence layers that you build on top of it are so fantastic that there just needs to be some balance and some counterweights so that it's not taken advantage of. Like, unfortunately, I think we've all seen in the past how that happens and the, and the negative externality that comes from that. So I really don't think that anyone would prefer to not have that opportunity. But most individuals, I believe, would also want to be able to be in some control of how that works. And I think most organizations like Amazon are happy to provide that you know, selection and optionality because they understand what kind of value they deliver. And they're confident that as long as they're protecting that information in the right way and using it in a healthy way, they're just going to get more traction and more customer satisfaction, which begets growth and everything else. So how do we push for greater transparency, the information that the credit industry currently uses, mostly for profit companies with credit scoring? But even more importantly, how do we avoid the biases that are already ingrained in the credit scoring process when we're using alternative data? How do we, does alternative data get rid of biases or does it reinforce biases? Or how do we even know one way or the other? It's a learning model. And I, I think it needs to be constantly adapted. What's really interesting about the alternative data is you can actually section it out. You can actually di differentiate it from the more traditional aspects and see how that decisioning has operated and worked. But any model is going to be built with some type of historical bias to it, right? It's continuously learning. There's a set of parameters that you've built. What's important is to continue to evaluate that and make adjustments continuously over time. And I think that that sort of also runs into your other question there is around how do we safeguard this? How do we ensure its, its integrity? And that's really around communication. And I think that you know, when I use a service and when services are provided, you can communicate what's happening in an easy to understand way. And so, listen, you have to prevent against bias and you do that by continuously adapting and monitoring. And then you also need to communicate how those changes work. And that's something that most organizations are quite comfortable with. And our experience, we've actually seen some of those, you know, machine learning techniques and analytics tools get a lot smarter and ability to eliminate bias over time. But you're right. You need to have that premise to say there could be inherent bias here. How do we eliminate it? And you need to communicate that. And when you do have edge cases or manual reviews, that needs to fuel and power your future decision making. But we're in the early innings still. You know, it really is early days. And so as we continue to explore and as this continues to drive decisions, we'll have better data to build better models. Finally, what does the future of alternative data and digital identity look like to you? And, and what is your guess as to 
what we're talking about as far as a the short term view, because we we don't take long term views anymore. We've learned against any any guess of long term. But how do you see the the whole marketplace for alternative data and digital identity changing in the near term? So the the one thing we know one hundred percent about the near term change is that it's going to continue to change. <laughs> I think that's exactly. what, yeah. you know what that's the most interesting thing about. And and when we talk to people about identity. Whether you're new to it or been in it in a while, like like the two of us, the fundamental planning decision is around flexibility. And, and that has to be the short-term understanding that you need flexibility. Flexibility in your tech stack, flexibility in your interactions with your end users, flexibility in your distribution mechanism, flexibility in your decision engines. And if you don't have that flexibility, and the partners that are powering your solutions aren't built with that flexibility. You're gonna end up being behind the scene and you're gonna end up damaging your own growth and your customer experience repetitively. So how do you get that flexibility? You build your system so that you can interchange and orchestrate a variety of different solutions at the same time so you can evaluate that ecosystem. Nobody knows what's being built right now between two females or two guys in new innovation that's going to be released in a month and it's going to change the way we do everything, right? So, you know, we want to make sure that we can take advantage of all this new innovation. And the only way you do that is if you build your platform and your experience with that in mind. And that marketplace, like you said, the ecosystem that you're driving into and that you're leveraging can interchange, can orchestrate, and can adapt based on the demographics or the changing environment. So it's like the first thing we always talk about that's happening and that you need to continuously remind yourself of. Zach, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your insight and, and your history of what you've been doing here because it, it, it's such a dynamic marketplace that involves much more than financial services and much more than just fraud and risk. And I think this is the one thing that we all have to, to recognize is that really when you're looking at digital identities and we're looking at alternative data, the ultimate goal has got to be about the consumer. It's got to be for the benefit of the consumer because if it's not, it's going to be shut down. In addition, when you get to privacy and all these other elements, it's about a better customer experience. It's about speed. It's about simplicity, about intuitiveness. I, I always use the example of the Apple Card where they only ask you to verify what they already know about you, give you four digits of your ID, and uh, ask you for your, your annual income, and then have you review the terms and regulations. And by the time you push the fourth button, only four, you have the card not only approved, but you have it already in your Apple Watt at the top of the wall. And you go, you know, how's that done? Well, there's a lot of mechanism in the background that really makes sure that it is me doing that, that it's not just me saying this is the way it is, not just stealing information, but there's all the things that happen in the background that make my life easier and better and give me the security. And you've mentioned trust, which is really key in this whole engagement. So thanks a lot for being on the show today, Zach. Hey, it was great, Jim. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. So really interesting interview is Zach Cohen from Trulio. I think it's important to note that it's not just about risk and fraud when you're looking at digital identities, you're looking at alternative data. It's the potential to open up a marketplace that has been inaccessible, not only to us as financial institutions, but to the consumer as it relates to working with financial institutions. 
this is a real big opportunity. And while most of you on the on the pod, listening to the podcast may not be as familiar with digital identities and alternative data, it's worth a listen because I think it really shows what the potential is. And as with many things in the digital world right now, the desire for a consumer to open their doors and let us in is going to be totally based on the value we provide in return. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated as a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating and preferably a written review. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the Digital Banking Report for research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, digital customer experience, and financial marketing. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, embrace change, keep learning, and be willing to disrupt the status quo at your company and in your life. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.